We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When last we saw Bradley, he and his colleagues were architects of the single biggest failure in U.S. soccer history. Over the years, I have been a Bradley supporter. I still am. But I don't believe he should be part of this next cycle. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about Michael Bradley's return to the U.S. men's national team. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you today, Mossy? I am good. Jersey of choice is Schalke. This was a gift from a, a coworker. I have to say, it is extremely tight on me. I'm very uncomfortable right now. But, have you been uh, lifting, or is this a, no, a natural phenomenon? This is a, a weight issue, uh, okay. but uh, <laughs> this serves as motivation for me because this is doable. I want to come back like three weeks from now wearing the same jersey and have it look comfortable on my body. Right. So well, this is, we, well, we know you're hiking uh, from uh, right. previous episodes of the State of the Union. You've been telling us. Did you hike this weekend? Did you go uh, back up into the mountains? I did, yes. Mountain man. It's incredible. Uh, this is Weston McKinney's uh, Schalke, uh, no, right? Actually, no, actually, no, uh, no, no name. I know it's not back. his jersey, but it's we, we call it Weston McKinney's Schalke now. Uh, Weston McKinney's yeah. Schalke takes on blah, blah, blah. Right, blah. right. So that's, that's what's happening. Well, you know, as you know, I've, I've sort of run out of my own jerseys, so I've been trying to figure out a way to freshen up this whole concept of me wearing jerseys on the air. So on our Bundesliga shows every week, uh, we give away a jersey right. as a prize, but it doesn't get shipped out for a few days. And so I asked, can I perhaps wear those jerseys on the podcast? And I was told an emphatic no to that question. The, the, the calculation was, does this make it more or less valuable to yes. the uh, recipient uh, if uh, it is a, a David Mossy-worn jersey? of you know, Certainly say, less when I wear it to our lunches after these tapings and I spill like right, right. food uh, on it and it's... And yeah, I mean, there are probably some out there that would love to have your musk as an added <laughs> bonus uh, for that jersey. Some very uh, few um, and, and very demented people out there. Uh, but I'm sure they're out there, and we'd love to hear from them. All right, Mossy, enough uh, talking about how you smell. Should we get going here? We'll light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. 
Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game through the American perspective. And it goes a little something like this. A national team is not a meritocracy. There is no formula that spits out 23 names. Because a national team isn't the best 23 players. It's the best group of 23 players. It's a subjective opinion of human beings who pick who he or she feel will best help them win. And when it comes to looking at a player's club performance, form is often fallacy. U.S. men's national team interim coach Dave Serkin and I suppose newly appointed GM Ernie Stewart are the current humans that have called in veteran captain Michael Bradley to the latest U.S. camp. When last we saw Bradley, he and his colleagues were architects of the single biggest failure in U.S. soccer history, not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. Now, even in the best of times, Michael Bradley is a lightning rod for differing opinions. Over the years, I have been a Bradley supporter. I still am. I have said that he can be world-class, and despite an abysmal season with Toronto, he still can be. But I don't believe he should be part of this next cycle. From a young age, Michael Bradley was given national team opportunities, even at the expense of others who maybe at the time, quote-unquote, merited those opportunities. Now it's time to do the same. The U.S. doesn't play a World Cup qualifier for at least two years. Michael Bradley will be 35 years old in 2022. It's not that Michael Bradley can't do the job. It's that given the opportunity and time, maybe we can find someone who can do it better. There you have it, my State of the Union for this week. Mossy, thoughts? Well, first off, let's be upfront about what inspired this State of the Union. This was a response to Grant Wall, who took a <laughs> shot at you on his podcast regarding this Bradley issue. This is like a rap battle. You're Eminem, he's Machine Gun Kelly. You two are going back and forth on this, so I'm eager to see his response. But Well, I hope it stays a war of, war of words, because uh, Grant, has a, I think he has the reach on me. He's, yes. He's, uh, he's tall and gangly and wiry. Yeah. Well, as far as Bradley, listen, I've said this before on this podcast, to me, the only thing that's giving any meaning to these friendlies right now is the opportunity to evaluate some of these young players on an individual basis. When you don't have a coach, I don't think you can read anything into tactics or style of play or building a team. It's all about evaluating these young guys. And I don't need to evaluate Michael Bradley right now. So to me, this makes no sense, regardless of his club form. Now, as we move forward in this cycle and you hire a coach, you're going to eventually come upon games where the result does matter, gold cups, qualifiers and such. And then it's going to be less about developing players and more about putting out the team that you think gives you the best chance of winning that day. And we'll see where Bradley is. We'll see where the young players are. But even then, you think Bradley's club form isn't going to be as much of a determinant factor. I mean, let's explain this form as fallacy concept sure. a little bit more. What, what do you mean Look, by that? I've talked about this before. Uh, if you have a player that is tearing it up for a club team, it doesn't necessarily mean that when you pl pluck that player out and then put him into the uh, international environment with the national team, whatever international team it may be, that it's going to translate, okay? It doesn't mean it's not. And certainly you're hedging your bets when you have a player, especially when it comes to scoring goals in particular. Uh, they, they talk about being, you know, he's in form, he's in form, scoring goals. Bobby Wood has had a good week, he's scoring goals. So is he in form? Well, what about the previous week? But it also doesn't mean that you have a player who isn't necessarily tearing it up, isn't even necessarily looked at as being that good. You could bring him or her into the national team, and that player could, could perform. And you know that's why, that's why I say 
inevitably, and it's just it's not the, just the U.S. men's national team, or it's all national teams. We have this debate. It's part of what we love about the sport. It's this person should be in, this person should be in. But it's always in the context of this person deserves to be called in. This one, this person merits a call up. Why didn't he or she get this call uh, a call up? And that's where I, I come down to. There is not this this formula, this this algorithm, whatever you want to call it, where you put in the data from the club situation and then it spits out. Well, these are the twenty three players that we have now. Someday that may that may happen with analytics and with robotics and all that kind of stuff. And it will, will take the whole human element out. And this is the best possible way to hedge our bets for winning. And these are the 23 names that are spit out. Until then, it still is human beings. And it's human beings with baggage, with opinions, with history, human beings with biases, all of those different things. And so I think that's, that's important to know. So when you get all up in arms that this person who you like or you don't like uh, isn't or is called in and you bring in merit or you bring in this person deserves it. I just understand where this decision is, is, uh, is coming from. Your opinion as to who the best player is might be very, very different from the other opinion. And the other opinion matters most. In this case, it's Dave Sarikin and, as I said, slash Ernie Stewart. And, and to get back to your point, yes, it is a little weird here that we still don't have a coach. This is an interim type of situation. And so we could wash the entire thing away and say, well, until you hire a coach, we're not going to talk about the men's national team. We don't want to do that because... Time's ticking. And if what I, what I uh, am submitting to you, if it's going to happen, you have to have the players give them the opportunity and use the time that you have been gifted, this silver lining that you had. And, and keep in mind, we've already wasted a year. Use that time to get those players up to speed so that when that, that, that day rolls around that you're talking about right now, where it does matter, and that's going to come sooner, uh, sooner than we think, that you may have a player who right now isn't as good as Michael Bradley, but at that point, given those opportunities, could be not just as good, but better. Yeah, I tend to agree with you that people overrate club form sometimes. Most national team coaches, when there's a big enough sample, put more value in a guy's national team performances than what he does for his club because they say what's really relevant is what he does with me and the way I use him. And also, most national team coaches, as much as they can, strive to build a team. It's never going to be like a club that trains every day, but if there's some consistency in who you call in and they play enough games together, you can develop some degree of cohesion and chemistry. And in order to do that, you have to make some decisions about, I just fun fundamentally like this guy more than that one and I think he fits in better if you're constantly reacting to players form at that given moment for their clubs you're going to be changing so much that you're never going to be able to build a team like that so yeah I agree with you I think you know I experienced this with Firmino and Jesus and it's not the best example because in retrospect Firmino should have started but you know a lot of Liverpool fans were just looking at it Firmino's been better this season for Liverpool than Jesus was for Manchester City and I was trying to explain well there's other factors at play Jesus has played better for Brazil he has a better chemistry with Neymar he seems to fit a little better <laughs> there's no other factor uh, Unless Liverpool is playing in the World Cup, there is no other fact. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the style of play, he seemed to fit better. So I think Chichi's reasoning was sound, but it didn't work out, obviously. But uh, so I think people need to understand. I think people always go to the club form. And like, to your point, yeah, they think, you know, because this guy's outperforming this one at club level, then he should play ahead of him in the national team. It's not always that simple. Well, you mentioned our good friend uh, Grant Wall, and, and he is a good friend and, and uh, just a, a wonderful writer. And, and uh, it, we have we are privileged to have him as part of the Fox team. Uh, team often uh, and he has been for a number of years and so uh, take it with a grain of salt we're not we're not we're not fighting uh, we do disagree and we often disagree about a lot of uh, a lot of things and you know his point was and I'm not going to deny this the whole and we've talked about this on previous podcasts the whole baby with the bathwater type of thing and you know his point was what happened uh, in 2017 this epic failure of not qualifying for the World Cup it it 
it informs the way that I look at players now. And I look at them differently if they are associated, if they are scarred, um, if they are tarred with this incredible failure. And should it matter? I, 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 think, it, I think it should. And I've, and I've talked to this, uh, about this before where this is such a epic failure. And it's such a seminal moment. And everybody agrees that it is a seminal moment for different reasons, and, and everybody disagrees as to what the changes should be. But this group of players, we talk so much about responsibility and ownership and living up to whatever code or, or whatever beliefs that we have when, when it comes to representing your country. And there should be ramifications. And there, there should be responsibility. And as, I'm, as, as I said before, it doesn't mean you don't call in Christian Pulisic. But someone like Michael Bradley, who has had his time, and as I said before, while in the, in the immediate he certainly could help, in the long term, giving these opportunity, I think is going to pay dividends. And the ironic thing is Michael Bradley, in particular, was given opportunities. And some have argued that he was given opportunities that others wouldn't be given. And this is where that whole nepotism thing. I'm not, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I think Michael Bradley, and I've, and as we all know, when I gave my list of the top 10 field players in American uh, international history, Michael Bradley was, was among them. And people disagreed with me when it came to that. So I think Michael Bradley has earned everything. But you cannot deny the fact that at times, especially when your father is coach, sometimes you are going to get the benefit of the doubt. And I know if Bob Bradley was here, he would take me to task and he would say, no, 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 he, he, he earned it all. But really, it doesn't matter because once again, in that case, it's Bob Bradley's opinion. Okay, It's not about what you deserve or what you merit. It's Bob Bradley's opinion. And if it is influenced by the fact that that is his son, and in that moment he gave Michael Bradley opportunities and playing time and patience, that's what I'm asking for at this moment. I'm asking for some of these young players to be given the opportunity and the patience to develop into what Michael Bradley developed into, even at the expense of some others that you and I and others may believe merit, quote-unquote merit, or deserve it more. So, you know, ultimately, this is going to be interesting because I'm heading down to Florida for the game against Columbia, which you can see on Fox, and Michael Bradley is going to be a part of this team. As I said before, I don't think Michael Bradley should part, be part of this next cycle. I also don't think if you're going to bring Michael Bradley in, you got to play him. You have to start him. You have to have him be the captain. I know Will Trapp has been being the captain, but I don't want a Michael Bradley in with the national team sitting on the bench. For me, he does no good. And I know leadership. I'm going to let you in on a little secret about leadership and veteran, veteran experience and all that kind of stuff. It, it's not as important as people make it out to be. Honestly, I, 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 I kid you not. There are moments where leadership and veterans can help, but they are few and far between. And it's not as important, especially when it comes uh, to the international game. And I'm not discounting the fact that understanding the environments that you're going into, qualifying in CONCACAF and all that, it, it isn't important. But... Michael Bradley, that, that's all to say, you know, for example, yesterday uh, they asked me for my lineup for the Columbia game. I had Michael Bradley start it. He should start, he should captain, he should sit in front of that back four in what I believe is his best position, I think, and as I said before, I think he's world-class when he is in a withdrawn type of uh, midfield position. I think he gets into trouble the further he gets up the field. I don't know what Dave Sarakin's plan is going forward, but he has obviously called in Michael Bradley, he has called in Brad Guzan, and he's a little bit of a different situation because I, I, I think that uh, Zach Stefan, the current goalkeeper, it's his to lose. And so Brad Guzan is going to be that kind of sage veteran kind of just sitting there, which I'm not sure is going to make Brad Guzan happy, but that's, I think, the role that is going to be left to him. I don't see that role for a Michael Bradley. 
Yeah, I was going to say, because I think Bradley's uh, current club form is completely irrelevant here. The one argument somebody could make, which is one I think you and I would reject, but is that uh, there's some benefit to these young players having Michael Bradley around to learn from, but you don't buy into that at all. I, I, no. Um, I, never, I never learned from older players to the extent that it was this ah moment. Oh, now I get it. Now I understand how to kick the ball. And they're little things. And once again, I don't want to devalue the, the little things because they, they do matter. But it was not anything that I wouldn't ultimately learn. And learn quickly. So I didn't I didn't necessarily need them around. Now, the other uh, big subplot surrounding this game, unfortunately, is the players that have pulled out. Uh, sure. Three of the best young guys, Pulisic, Tyler Adams, and McKinney, will not be there. Uh, look, call me naive, but I don't think uh, any of them would fake an injury to get out of playing for the national team. But I would hope do, not. Do you think— it would, it would- it would break my heart if that was the case. Do you think there's anything to the fact that you pick up an injury right now that's not that serious, but you're less than 100%. If it was a big qualifier, you perhaps would tough it out, but because it's only a friendly, there's not a coach in place, you think, well, the club is a little bit more important right now. I'm actually playing competitive matches there, so I need to make sure I'm healthy for that. Um, Do you think that might enter the equation here? And if so, does that bother you? If you're Michael Bradley, you do. But not Pulisic, McKinney, or Tyler Adams. No. You take every opportunity. I don't care who you are. Pulisic, uh, McKenney, uh, anybody? You are not guaranteed anything. This, this is that moment. This is that moment when you show why you deserve to be there. This is that moment when you do take ownership of this team and you say, not on my watch. This is that moment when you come in and you say, it means something to me. I will fly across the, across the earth in order to represent my, uh, represent my country. So no, I don't, I don't think that that happens. If you're Michael Bradley, because you know, when, like you said, you, you know who he is a, as, a, uh, as a player. With these younger players, you got to stake your claim, even if you're staking your claim through injury, and and because that claim might not be there. And the other part of this is that there is depth. There are players. There's other people that will gladly take that flight, that will gladly show up, even not a hundred percent, and will stake their claim. And once that's once that claim is staked, sometimes it's hard to win it back, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you're doing. So let me finish it with this though. My State of the Union was about. Uh, Michael Bradley. And it could be about other players. And I've said this about, I just used him as an example because he was one of the ones that got called in. Do you think that Michael Bradley should be part of the national team? Now, definitely not. And probably not in the future, but only because I really rate some of the young players the U.S. has at that position. So I don't foresee a scenario a year or two from now where Michael Bradley is the player that gives you the best chance to win games. But I'm willing to have an open mind then. I think at some point we're going to move away from this phase of just giving young players opportunities and actually trying to put the best lineup on the field to win that game right in front of you. And there is a scenario, perhaps, where, where depending on how Michael Bradley is at that point and how the young players have developed, where you could, I suppose, make a determination that Michael Bradley still is that guy. Well, you know what this means, Mossy. Uh, this means that Michael Bradley is not only going to be involved, he's going to captain the team, he's going to be the leading goal scorer in CONCACAF uh, World Cup qualifying, lead the team uh, to Qatar in 2022 and raise the World Cup because uh, there's nothing that uh, gets the Bradleys fired up more than any type of uh, criticism. And that's what makes them great and that's what has made them to be uh, be successful. And Michael Bradley is, uh, is, uh, is no different. So I am looking forward to seeing what Michael Bradley looks like in this in this scenario. But as I said before, uh, I do believe there should be a break. I do believe that this is the moment to make that break. And as as you have said, I do believe there is plenty of players that have given the opportunity and time uh, can take a hold of that and become not as good, but even better than Michael Bradley going forward. All right, anything else before we leave? No. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. 
Yes, it's that time again when Mossy makes the case. My good friend David Mossy tells us what's eating him. Uh, this week, Mossy, what kind of case are you making? My case is that Lionel Messi has never felt less Argentine to me than he does right now. Oh. I don't know if you remember this, but after a match they won at the Champions League when he scored a hat-trick against PSV, I asked you if you thought Argentinians could take pleasure in seeing him do this for Barcelona or if the wound from the World Cup was still too fresh, and you said the wound was still too fresh. Fast forward to match day two, he didn't score a hat-trick against Tottenham, but he turned in what's been universally hailed as one of the great performances of his career, which I know is saying something, but it was that good. He completely controlled the game for 90 minutes. Everything ran through him. He made every right decision, when to play it long, when to play it short, when to speed it up, when to slow it down. His dribbling, his passing, his finishing were all superb. He scored two goals. He hit the post twice. It was an all-around masterclass, and it got me thinking about this Argentina thing again. Keep in mind, he's not even playing for Argentina right now. Uh, Messi has chosen to take this Landon Donovan-like sabbatical. Nobody knows when he's coming back or even if he's coming back. Last week, Maradona advised him never to play for Argentina again. Uh, Mauro Icardi implored him to come back for the 2019 Copa America, which is in Brazil. But nobody knows. There's all this uncertainty surrounding uh, this situation. And Messi seems very disconnected from it, like he doesn't want to think about Argentina right now. But it's going to be interesting to see how he handles this. Uh, I've always rejected this notion that Messi is somehow less Argentine because he moved to Spain when he was 13. I think he's shown tremendous commitment through the years. He's played 128 games for Argentina, four World Cups. But listen, he is a guy that flirted with retirement once before. And if he walks away now at the age of 31, when he still has so much left to give, uh, I wonder how that's going to play in a country that's so passionate about the game, where you basically have to rip guys off the field at the end of their careers. So he needs to be careful how he handles this. I think it's kind of a fascinating subplot here late in his career. Uh, I don't think that he is any less Argentine. Are we Argentinian or what are we doing? What are we? What are you? Just to clarify, I mean from a footballing <laughs> sense. Like I'm, I just think of him right now as just a Barcelona player, and I don't even think of him in the context of playing for Argentina. He seems totally disconnected from that right no, now. No, my point is that while he might not be any less Argentine or Argentinian, and I'm sure people out there will correct <laughs> us on this, my point is that he is that much more human in that his reaction to this, and I, I. I I can't empathize because I've never been in this type of situation. I can sympathize from afar uh, and imagine what it may be like. And even then, I probably would have to times it by five to really understand the, the weight and the oppressive type of uh, environment that it is to be messy when he represents Argentina on the field. Is it of his own making? Yeah, I guess you could you could argue that because of the path that he took. For example, if he had continued to play on into you know his twenties or something, and his early twenties then came over to Europe and was a for the most part a finished product, maybe he would feel differently about this weight. Um, but still, and it's ironic that that Maradona would tell him never to play because. If there is an albatross around Messi's neck, Maradona is hanging from it <laughs> because uh, the inevitable compare and contrast that is going to happen between him has happened and will continue to happen if he keeps he keeps going. Uh, but you know, is it is it just is it just the pressure, or you you don't believe that it's because he feels any less sense of responsibility or pride at putting that shirt on, right? 
Yeah, where Maradona was going with it, and this is something that's engendering some sympathy from people, is the Argentinian Federation is so dysfunctional right now, and that team is such a mess that there's a sense that why should Messi subject himself to any of that? But, oh, stop. Really? But, that's his argument? I think that, that, I, I think that that's, that's BS. That, that's, that's an argument that doesn't hold any weight right. for me. Right. Well, yeah, but I, I would argue as, as the cycle that, moves forward. Because that applies to everybody. Right. Well, how does, it, how does it hurt Messi that much more right. that the Argentinian Federation is in shambles? And I certainly think as the cycle moves on, if Argentina are floundering and he's playing week in and week out for Barcelona, still scoring hat tricks and still the best player in the world, even people that are defending him on that front are going to turn on him and say, well, wait a minute, you should be going and helping your country. So I, I think that argument isn't going to hold weight for, you don't think it holds weight at all, but even no. people that are making it now, I, I think eventually they're going to say, look, whatever the issue is there, your country needs you, you need to go rescue them. So yeah, I mean, listen, I think in the short term, he's just making a decision for his own sanity and happiness. I don't think he enjoys playing for Argentina right now. I think on some level, he regrets not sticking to his guns in 2016. Remember, his initial inclination mm-hmm. after the Centenario yep. was to retire, yep. and then he was talked into coming back and did so out of a sense of patriotism. But I feel, I feel like not much good came out of him playing in this last World Cup. And so he's maybe told himself, this time I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to do what I think is best for me. But I don't. I just knowing Argentina and, and, and if they're struggling over the course of this cycle, once we get into qualifying and all that, and he's not playing, the pressure for him to come back and, and save the day is going to be too strong. He's not going to be able to resist. And the other thing, the other element here is obviously uh, with South Americans, I think Europeans, they view the Euros as almost like a second World Cup. So you have that big carrot every two years that influences your decisions about uh, your national team career. With South American teams, the Copa America doesn't have that much juice. It really is all about the next World Cup. And he'll be 35 then. And and perhaps he's thinking, do I really want to go through that grind of qualifying in 18 games and then all that pressure that surrounds me at a World Cup, especially when I'm 35 and I might not be able to live up to what people expect from me. So I think all of that is entering this equation too. But even then, I think the, the allure of playing in another World Cup, he'll ultimately come back. Yeah, but I, I don't think that any of us, no, I don't, I know that none of us, uh, nobody on the, on the planet can approximate what he is going through. Uh, even, you know, because there have been plenty of big time players that have had to go to their national team and in essence take a step down in quality in terms of the talent that is surrounding them, that have had to go to their national team that at times has been in champ- uh, George Weah, for example. Oh. Uh, you know, you can, you, the list goes on and George on and on. Best, yeah. But going to Argentina, that's a totally different story. And what, what he feels when he goes there, as I said, that it's in shambles, I don't think is, I don't think is, uh, is an excuse. And once again, I, I'm, I, can never, I can never put myself in his shoes. Uh, and none of us can, because I, I, from the outside, would say, even a day representing my country in the midst of a complete shambles of a federation, in the midst of uh, being surrounded by lesser quality, is better than a day of not representing my country. I was actually going to ask you that. This whole concept of a guy that's still playing week in and week out for his club at a high level, retiring from the national team, does that rub you the wrong way? Do you feel like uh, if your national team needs you, you should always be ready to go and represent them? Yeah, but I, I say that from a point that I wasn't making the type of money that some of these players are making right now. And I know it shouldn't matter, but when you recognize that you have a finite amount of time to make as much money and some of these players aren't going to have great opportunities once that door closes and they've stopped playing, there's a recognition that for the good of my future, I need to do what's right for me and my family. It's easy for me to sit on the outside and and say, 
it's your country, you should go. That's how I felt. I know that's how m- most, if not all, of the players that I played with felt. But I can at least try to sympathize and, and understand that when you are making ridiculous amounts of money and you are called, you know, whether it's the travel, whether it's the circumstances and all that kind of stuff, you may think twice about doing it. I never thought twice, but I also was never in that, in that type of situation where thinking twice about it uh, was even an option. And just to give a little more context here, Argentina have uh, an interim coach right now, Lionel mm-hmm. Scaloni, but uh, this is not a Dave Sarakin situation. He, he makes no bones about the fact he wants the job permanently, and he's more or less auditioning for it right now. Argentina, they have two friendlies coming up against Iraq, and then they play Brazil next week in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Neymar will be there. Messi will not. Uh, actually, I told you I was going to jam this in this week's podcast. A lot of Brazil-Argentina coming up this month because you have this national team game, and you have both Libertadores semifinals, uh, Grêmio against River Plate and Palmeiras against Boca Juniors. And every non-Brazilian right now is salivating over the prospect of a River Plate Boca Juniors final, which could happen. All these games, by the way, on Fox Deportes. So stay tuned for that. So exciting times now in the whole Brazil-Argentina. Uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, and, and you obviously are much more schooled in terms of the, the Brazilian aspect. But when it comes to the Argentinian uh, aspect, Argentine aspect, <laughs> we're going to figure <laughs> this out by the end of the show. Is it really as as dire as as Messi would have us believe. I know he's under pressure, that, but that, that happens to a lot of players. Lots of pl- pressure. But is he really as, not loathe, because I don't think anybody, regardless if you're a critic of Messi, if you're, you're from Argentina and you're a critic of Messi, but is there really this, this segment that doesn't feel that he is Argentinian, uh, that doesn't feel that he is one of them, and that this is, this is, uh, this is something that, um, that guides a lot of this? I've, I think that's been overblown. I know there's been a lot of stories written about that, but boy, in my sense, every Argentine I come across loves Messi. I don't have know. You, have I mean. you ever met anybody that hates Messi? I haven't met, I haven't met anybody yeah. that For hates Messi. For a long Messi. time, there was this notion that deep down, Tevez was the guy they really identified with more because they felt like he was more of a true Argentinian player. Well, but. that's different. <laughs> saying I would much rather go have a beer with this guy. Right. That, that we, that we do that in all walks of life. Yeah. But I've never met somebody that because... I don't want to have a beer with this guy, or I don't think it would be as cool having a beer with this guy. I hate him. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't. That doesn't work. I, I have yet to meet any people from Argentina uh, who just don't like Messi. It's funny. One last note on this. Uh, I that, that same point I made about all the Brazil Argentinas coming up. I, I tweeted at Fernando Fiore about it. Uh, hey, looking forward to all these games, and he didn't reply right away. So I thought, oh my god, I wonder if I caught him at a bad time, whether something going on in his life. Or and sure enough, the response finally came. It was him at the River game, holding up a, a jersey and, and with that big goofy smile of his. And boy, that guy is living the life, man. Oh well, speaking of living, I mean, I mean, so Messi is living the life too. So regardless, uh, don't don't cry for Messi, but uh, but he is. A- under he is under pressure I, I would still think that at some point he's going to return to that uh, to that national team it's hard you know just when you think you're out they pull me back in <laughs> <laughs> all right moving on ask alexi all right it's time for our ask alexi segment the hashtag ask alexi segment the moment of the pod when we answer uh your questions or we respond to your comments or your concerns that you have used the ask alexi hashtag with and you've sent them over social media in a different ways twitter facebook or or, uh, whatever way out there and we do encourage you going forward please use that ask alexi hashtag and we will take some of the best of them uh, like we are about to do now and my good friend david mossy if you're lucky will uh, read some of those comments, uh, concerns, and questions. All right, what do the people have to say? First up, at Nate underscore Michelle, I think it is. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think there is more pressure on the U.S. women than the U.S. men, considering the fact that the women traditionally compete for a World Cup title as compared to the men where we consider making it to the round of 16 as success? No. I think that there is more pressure. And when I say, well, obviously we're dealing with pressure domestically because from an international perspective, um, there's no pressure on either of the teams. But if there is pressure, it's, it's more on the men's team just because the men's game is more popular than the women's game. Uh, when it comes to the pressure on the women's team, uh, the defending world champions, uh, they are, if everything goes as planned, going to be in France next summer for the Women's World Cup, defending their World Cup. And if you're meaning pressure to defend the World Cup, yeah, I mean, I don't think that there still is a whole lot of uh, pressure. Just think of the response when the men failed to qualify for the World Cup, uh, what is it, over a year ago now, and the general population and some of the mainstream uh, sports folks out there, and, and, and it even transcended sports, understood that the U.S. team was not going to be at the World Cup. They didn't even watch the game. They weren't even aware necessarily that qualifying was going on. But when the news hit, it was national news. People were talking about it. People, were, people that weren't even following the team had opinions about it and how this was, this was horrible and this was indicative of, uh, of uh, how stunted our soccer development is and you know, a, million, a million different things. If the U.S. women's team were to fail to qualify for next summer's World Cup, it would, it would, be, it would, it would be news, but I don't think it would be met with the consternation and the general anger that was met with the uh, the men's team. Just because, once again, while we are the world champions, there's still not the fan base out there that cares as much about women's soccer as men's soccer. So I don't think that there is as much pressure on the U.S. women. Now that's coming from the outside. Internally, and I've spoke to Jill Ellis, uh, I know that these players, they put pressure on themselves. And that comes from not just the team that exists now, but a history and a long history of being very, very successful. And that's a, that's a pressure, but it's a different type of pressure. Okay, And what is really interesting to me sometimes is when we, when we start to broadcast women's games, and you know, I was involved, one of the, one of the best things I, I have ever done, most fun I've ever had, and one of the things I'm most proud of is my first Women's World Cup back in Canada. And I learned so much about the game in general. I learned so much about women's soccer. But I also was involved at a time when you start to criticize and you start to treat the women's game and the women's players in the same way that you're treating the men's game and the men's players. And it's, it's, it's almost a shock to the system sometimes when that happens. U.S. women are much more used to that than other women's national teams. But when it comes to the pressure on the women right now, I think the pressure is internal. And, it's, and that's good because they want to live up to the past. They want to live up to what the expectations are from the soccer community and the soccer culture. But I don't think it extends out in the way that it does for, uh, for the men's program. You may, you may disagree with me, but let me know and use that Ask Alexi hashtag. Thank you, Nate. Next up, at Healthcare Kern. Alexi, diehard U.S. men's national team and Atlanta United fan. Who is favored for those coaching jobs, in your opinion? And she put in parentheses, or he, uh, assuming Tata is gone. So, 
Okay, so I have no inside information, and we don't know what Tata Martino is going to do. He, who has been, if he does leave, he has been a wonderful addition to this league, and certainly has been very successful in Atlanta. In uh, along with others, being the architect of this team that is must must see when it comes to Major League Soccer. Uh, they are entertaining. Uh, from a business standpoint, they are uh, having their assets appreciate so much so that Miguel Almiron is now linked to going to Arsenal for uh, a huge fee. Who knows if that all happens? All right, so when it comes... So, all right, off the top of my head, who, who are people out there? Atlanta's, Atlanta's interesting because the way they have gone about their business on and off the field is with a very global and international and cosmopolitan type of feel. And I think that that is paid dividends to them, and I think that they will want to continue that. So, for example, when you say who's, who's out there from a, of an MLS perspective, well, a guy like Caleb Porter or something like that. Do I see that happening? Yeah. I mean, look, you're coming off of Tata Martino. So then you're talking about Scalotto, all right, who's bandied about all the time as a possible uh, MLS coach and a hire. I think that would be huge for a couple of reasons. Number one, he knows the league having played in it. Uh, number two, he has had success already at the coaching, uh, in coaching in, in pressure-filled environments. And number three, and maybe most importantly, for Atlanta in particular, having somebody who is able to attract talent is crucial. Because don't tell me that a guy like Almiron or a guy like Joseph Martinez or a guy like uh, Ezekiel Barco, those guys, if Tata it's, they have a better chance of coming if Tata is the coach, and there is a value to that. So someone like Scilotto would, I think, fit and tick a lot of those boxes. Then you have guys out there that are just waiting around. Um, Thierry Henry. I, I think they go with a big name. I hope they go with a big name. Uh, and, and a big name doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be American, but obviously there's a lot more bigger names that, that aren't uh, domestic. How about Vias Boas? Once, once touted as the next Mourinho... I think he's out of a job right now. He finished up over in China or whatever, and uh, I think he's out of a job right now. And then from a domestic standpoint, I mentioned Caleb Porter. I think Tab Ramos is going to get called into a lot of job interviews, uh, and he does tick a, uh, tick a lot of boxes. If and when the national team coach is hired and Tab Ramos is not given that job, and I don't think that he's going to get that job, but once again, I'm just just gut feeling. I have I have no inside information. So those are those are a few names right now. And once again, we still don't know what Tata is going to do. He said he's momentarily. I guess he would uh, be making a decision as to whether he's going to continue on uh, and sort out that contract or go. There's rumors of him going to coach internationally with Mexico uh, and other teams out there. So you know, those are some possibilities out there. Which means that any of those five or so that I just named will definitely not be the coach of Atlanta United. <laughs> At Coach Forst, what is your favorite memory of playing soccer in high school? My favorite? Okay, so uh, we, we talk about high school soccer and what it is, and, and nowadays we talk about what it isn't. And it, it pains me that high school soccer isn't what it used to be. But to a certain extent, maybe that is just the natural evolution of what soccer has become with academies, with the Development Academy, with MLS and other professional leagues having uh, their youth teams, it's kind of inevitable that the high school route is going to be more and more of an afterthought. I loved the ceremony of, of the day when you had a game in high school. I loved, and I was very, very fortunate, and I recognize this. I know nowadays if you are... Uh, 
you know, if you if you have any type of advantage or benefit uh, or entitlement, you have to make sure that everybody understands how much you appreciate it. And I do. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to grow up and to go to a high school that was very good academically and also had a decent soccer team. It wasn't perennial power or anything like that, a decent soccer team. And one that I recognized wouldn't be detrimental to my uh, continued soccer education. But more importantly, it's something that I wanted to do. And it, and it pains me and it's sad that we are making players choose now and that they are not, in some cases, allowed to play high school soccer and they don't have that experience. Because that experience for me, I think it was vital for me in my development as a soccer player and my development as a, as a human being. So I, I love the ceremony of the day. In my, in my high school, when we had game day, you would come and you would wear a coat and tie. You know, different places do it differently. Sometimes you wear your jerseys, all that kind of stuff. But there was a aesthetic that recognized that there was something special that was going on. And I loved the whole ceremony of then going to the locker room after school and putting on the uniform and going to the field where you were going to play. And maybe you had music or maybe you had a, you know, you were running through cheering people or whatever it ended up being and seeing classmates lined around the field. Honest to God, I, I don't remember scores of games. I don't remember goals that I may or may not have scored, but I remember that incredible enjoyment. I remember that incredible pride that I had of representing my school and the unique ritual uh, that was involved in that. And I think that it's a shame that this generation and future generations will be deprived of that or will have less and less of that in their lives because I do think that it can be beneficial. And like I said, maybe or maybe not for the soccer player, but I do think ultimately it's beneficial for the young men and women that we are putting out there that are, they may or may not go on to be professional soccer players. As a matter of fact, 99.9, whatever percent of them aren't going to be professional soccer players, but they are going to be the leaders of our country. And we have a responsibility to give them as many of those opportunities and those experiences that make them good leaders going forward. And I just believe that that was one of them. So that, that was my experience from a high school perspective. And once again, I recognize and admit that there are others that would not have that experience. I was very, very fortunate in the high school that I attended that that was the type of environment and that was the experience that was afforded me. I played uh, varsity soccer my senior year. I broke my leg in the middle of the season, missed the rest of the campaign, and I rooted for my team to lose every game that I didn't play in. Wow. What's I, it, what, did, you, did you kick somebody or did you trip or what happened? Nah, I was in a game, a 50-50 ball. I got there first, the guy got me. and You got to go harder. Yeah. <laughs> How long were you out? What did you actually break it where you had to put pins in it or anything like that? You know, I say break. I think it was actually like a bad fracture. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it's enough. It's going to turn into a sprain here yes. by the end of the pod. But, All you right. know, I just wanted that board at the end of the season with Mossy without. I want to be with, you know. <laughs> Ever the statistician. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. That is it. All right. Thank you once again for uh, all of your questions, comments, and concerns. And as we said, use that Ask Alexi hashtag. And who knows, Mossy may read your questioner. Oh, your concern in future podcasts. All right, moving on. We're coming to the end. The Back Three. It's time for our Back Three, where we look at the biggest stories and the games and the moments out there. Mossy, what three do we have teed up for us this week? First up, let's look back at match day two of the Champions League. Uh, Ooh, the, okay. the best match was Tottenham-Barcelona. Barcelona, Barcelona mm -hmm. winning 4-2 at Wembley. We mentioned that. One for the ages when it comes to Messi, right? A couple of interesting things here. Messi was made captain this season. They had a ceremony at the start of the season, and he got up there and gave a speech to the fans at Camp Nou, and he made a big point of saying how motivated he was to win the Champions League this season. That was the big priority. And sure enough, they've struggled in La Liga, and they've played well in the Champions League. 
And after this Tottenham game, it was brought up to him, does that speak to the fact that your focus is more on Champions League? And he felt the need to walk it back and say, no, I was misinterpreted. We're not excluding any competitions. We want to win everything. What do you make of that? That He doesn't like the appearance that they're shirking La Liga. Is that something that he should be able to own and just say, no, like we, we clearly, the Champions League is clearly our big priority this season? I think in this day and age, nobody would begrudge players that are playing for super clubs and elite clubs for publicly being able to say, look, this is our priority, which is why I loved, I don't know if you heard it, but uh, it was either last week, uh, we were working Bundesliga and Manuel Neuer came out and he said, obviously our first priority is to win uh, Bundesliga, which they're struggling <laughs> at right now, ironically, but that's fine. And I, and I do think that you know, from a global perspective, we talk about these brands and their global reach that they have right now and how, we talked about this on a previous podcast where the Champions League is going to have a a more a greater impact than winning your league on that global brand and that global audience that you have out there. But ultimately, I do feel that while and this is an isolation isolationist type of uh, type of theory, but you are a you are at, at your core you are a while you may be a team of the world at your core you are a team representing in most cases a city uh, and indirectly a country and playing in that league in that country and so. Saying that your priority and your first thought is to do that and to award the people that theoretically are the ones that you are seeing day in and day out, I don't think there's anything wrong. And I don't think anybody would have a problem with you, uh, uh, with you saying that. And I think that's where some of that comes, especially in this day and age where clubs are, and rightfully so, thinking so globally right now, bringing it back to what ultimately uh, started it all and paying homage to a certain extent to your community that you represent. Uh, you know, this is, while it's a team of the world, ultimately it's still called Barcelona, and you have your Barcelona fans in the city of Barcelona. That's okay, I think. And the lineup that Valverde started in this game is, in my opinion, the lineup that needs to play in the big games with Artur in the midfield, who's that young Brazilian I love, who's like the second coming of Xavi, and Coutinho farther up the field as part of the front three, and Dembele on the bench. I know Dembele scored some nice goals early on this season and was a real match winner for them and deserves credit for that, but he wasn't playing that well. He was covering up some average overall mm -hmm. performances by scoring goals. Uh, I still don't know that he's a great fit there. He gives the ball away a lot, which drives Messi crazy. Uh, there's a role for him. Uh, he's very talented. I think against the riffraff in Spain, you can start him and play Coutinho in the midfield. But in the big games where you want to be able to control the game a little bit more, I think he's going to be squeezed out. He's still a great weapon to have off the bench in those games. But I think playing Artur in the midfield and Coutinho as one of that front three is the way to go. And you saw that against Spurs. Two individual performances I want to highlight. Two players that had hat tricks on match day two. Paulo Dybala scored three for Juventus yes. against Young Boys in a match that Ronaldo missed due to suspension because of the red card he picked up against Messi Valencia. doesn't want to play for Argentina, I know somebody that does. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Dybala is such an interesting player because he's had all sorts of issues playing alongside Messi with Argentina. Didn't play much in the World Cup because Sampali decided, I, I can't make this work with these two guys. And there's also been some fit issues with Ronaldo early on this season. So he gets it from both ends, the oh, whole Messi-Ronaldo thing. But it was great for one day for him to remind everybody I'm a huge fan of his remind everybody what a great player he is and then the other guy was Neymar which look I feel like for all the Neymar haters there I do need to qualify it was against Red Star Belgrade at home but uh, <laughs> I've watched this guy enough to know when he's right and when he's not right he didn't seem right at the World Cup he didn't seem right early on this season last few games he started to look like Neymar again he's got that explosion back he was phenomenal in this game scored a hat trick two of them on gorgeous free kicks so that was great to see uh, Neymar kind of 
back on track a little bit. Any thought on either of those two guys, Dybala or Neymar? I like Dybala too. I think it is a embarrassment of riches and sometimes it doesn't work out. And one, and you know, once again, it goes back to what we started talking about in this podcast where a coach, I, I know a coach's inclination is I have this player. He's really great. I can see him playing, uh, you know, doing incredible things for his club team. I have to have him into the national team, but it, once again, it's not the best 23 players. And, and I'm not saying that Dybala can't work, but if you reckon, if you shouldn't recognize it at the World Cup that it's not going to work. You should recognize it well ahead and get, a, get ahead. And if it's not going to work, then don't call him in. Okay? And if you're going to force it, then you need time for that to work out. And there has to come a point where if it's not working out, you've got to make a choice between the two. And I know that that's, that's a choice that any national team in the world would love to have, but... Make the choice and go with it. If they if they just don't work together, then you don't bring them both in. And as far as Neymar, the interesting thing is he's really relishing playing in a, centrally for PSG, but Chichi has said for now he's going to stay on the left for Brazil. So that's something that bears watching because Tuchel is using him differently and he, and he seems to be enjoying it, but he's going to stick to his old role with Brazil. And you, So you think, you think Neymar is playing better. You don't think that there's any problem with Mbappe? Well, we're going to segue we to, to our European weekend roundup. We ended with PSG there. We'll start with PSG here. They beat Lyon 5-0 this weekend. Mbappe scored four goals in a 13-minute span in the second <laughs> half. It was reminiscent of uh, we did a Bundesliga game a couple years ago. Robert Lewandowski scored five goals in nine minutes for Bayern against Wolfsburg. It was absolutely incredible. But he made some interesting comments before the game that I showed you. Uh, he, he gave an interview where he was asked about the whole dynamic with him and Neymar. And he said, look, the club has made its choice. Neymar is the leader. And so for now, it's not an issue. The club has chosen that Neymar is our leader. What did you make of that? Was that weird phrasing on his part? Did that Was that revealing at all? I, I always worry because there is stuff that gets not lost in translation. It's just different translation and the, and the way that, yeah, it's lost in translation. I, I'm not sure it, it is in this case because, look, this is a guy who's feeling it. I'm talking about Mbappe. This is a guy who's coming off of winning the World Cup. This is a guy who plays beyond his years. I think this is a, this is a guy who sees himself as much older and mature than he may actually be. That's and that's by the way, this is all good stuff. And you know, Neymar, we all know, has just been constantly trying to find that place where he can be the man, other than the Brazilian national team. And I, I do think that this is a problem, and not just because of the the words that we that we heard right there, but it may not be a problem right now. But this isn't going away because Mbappe is only going to get better. He's only going to amass more and more power and therefore attention, and there's only so much of it to go around. And look, these are, these are huge stars, and one of the things that makes them huge is a good, healthy ego. And we all take different time in order to harness that ego and, and use it correctly, and Mbappe maybe will go through times where it's not harnessed as, as well, but he's going to want his. And he is going to demand his going forward, and his play is going to demand that he gets his. And if it's at the expense of Neymar, well, Mbappe has many more years ahead of him than Neymar has ahead of him. Yeah, to make an NBA analogy that I know is going to go over your head, there's a bit of a Westbrook-Durant dynamic there where it seems like they're going to take turns. And it's interesting that uh, coming off a game where Neymar had a hat trick and, and grabbed all the headlines that Mbappe felt the need to come out the next game and show, hey, I'm still here too. and it's, so uh, it's Mr. Gonna... Westbrook, where did he play? Oklahoma City. By the way, I saw him, cool celebrity sighting, a couple weeks ago in Brentwood at a CVS. Okay. 
And who did he play with? Your analogy? Uh, Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. Yes. Of the Oklahoma City what? Thunder, although he's since left. He's now with the, the Golden Thunder State Thunder of Warriors. Oklahoma City. Okay. Yeah. So they were there was a back and forth between these sure, two guys? yes. And uh, how did it resolve itself? With Durant it? leaving, which a lot of people thought was perhaps inspired by, you know, I don't love playing with this guy so much. And so I, there you go. That's what happens. Where does Neymar go next? Ah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, all right, let's shift gears to England. First, uh, let's do Liverpool City. Kind of a drab nil-nil. And this is Liverpool coming off a 1-0 Champions League defeat against Napoli, in which they didn't create all that much. They're now winless in four. Some of that good feeling from early in the season has dissipated. At the same time, they had a hellish run of fixtures mm-hmm. here. I think it was unrealistic to think they were going to get dinged a little bit. Uh, how worried are you about Liverpool? Are they still okay in your eyes? First off, I didn't feel that it was as boring and as dull as others did, considering you're looking at the best two teams. Perhaps the, the expectations. Were yeah, just, exactly. You know, and it's, now, it's hard for it to live up to expectations. And if it does live up to expectations, usually people equate that with goals and lots of goals, right? right. And But if that were to happen, then if you just... Neither of these coaches want it just to be a free form back and forth. As much as romantic as both of them are, they they recognize that playing against a team of equal and maybe even if they were to admit it better, depending on whose side you're looking on at quality, they have to be strategic and they have to be careful. I don't think that it was a a great game, but I don't but I, I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it. And look, penalty at the end, right? I, mean, I was going to ask you about that. Liverpool should have lost this game. Very odd situation. So late in the game, City win a penalty. Uh, Gabriel Jesus, who had replaced Sergio Aguero, grabs the ball. He wants to take it. And word comes from the bench that Pep wants Riyad Mahrez to take it. And so Mahrez grabs the ball from Jesus, who's clearly not happy. Mahrez takes it. And the NBC shows the graphic right before his penalty kick record is awful. And sure enough, he skies it 10 feet over the bar. So a lot of debate about that afterwards. You know, we've talked about how interesting that dynamic is of who should take a penalty. Listen, the only thing I would say, and Pep said afterwards that I liked the way Mahrez took them in training. But, it, I mean, it's a whole different level of pressure taking sure. a penalty in practice. Is I, I want a guy that wants to be up there. Right. And there was nothing about Riyad Mahrez's body language in the seconds after that penalty was whistled that indicated to me he wanted to take it. So for Pep to decide, no, you go take it, you're putting a player in a bit of an awkward position. What did, what did you make of that well, whole thing? part of managing is managing egos and managing personalities. If I'm Mares, I don't want my coach doing that in that, in that situation. I'll, I'll yell at him after the game, uh, or I'll yell at the, the guy that did take it, but it... it in a situation that's already fraught with pressure, you're actually making even more <laughs> pressure by doing that. And as as a player on the field, if a guy's feeling it, then don't get in the way of that uh, because that's that's some sort of magic happening. We all know. Look, a, a good penalty is a penalty that goes in the goal. <laughs> so there, you know, everyone goes, oh, "That was a good penalty. That was a bad penalty." <laughs> Nobody ever said a, a penalty that goes in. Oh, that was a bad penalty. No, just put it in. So figure out how to put it in. And if you have a guy there that is feeling it, that picks up the ball, that wants to do it, let him take it. it now, if Mares is wrestling it out and saying, no, 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 this is mine and stuff like that, that's different. But it was like having your dad uh, <laughs> intervene in a situation. And there's times where you want your dad to do it, and there's times where it's, dad, let me fight this one. Uh, you're making matters worse. 
Yeah. Now, Jesus, to be fair, doesn't have a great penalty kick record either. In fact, I witnessed one of his misses firsthand uh, last season. My dad and I took a trip to England. We went to a right. city Tottenham game at the Etihad, and Jesus missed a penalty in the game, which, by the way, ruined our whole trip. Uh, <laughs> but so there's no guarantee he would have made it either. But so let's shift gears to Manchester United, shall we? Okay. It was actually a riveting two hours because I was flipping back and forth. You had Manchester United, Bayern Munich, and Real Madrid all struggling, all with managers that are under fire, and you're seeing which one of these Giants is going to be able to sort of get out of this. And it ended up being Manchester United, this stirring comeback against Newcastle from 2-0 down. They win 3-2. So what does this mean for Mourinho moving forward? You did your State of the Union on him last week. So when when that game was over, I actually asked a question on Twitter. I said, was this good or bad for Mourinho? (laughs) Uh, And because, look, I I guess in, in the big sense, winning is good. But you beat a team that you're better than. You won at home. And he had to come back from being down to nothing, right? And keep in mind, this comes on the heels of a, a report in the, I don't know what it was, uh, saying that he was going to be fired regardless of what happened. We are recording this on a Monday. Uh, and last I checked, he is still the manager of <laughs> Manchester United. This, it could change by the time you are listening to this in your car or on your run or where you're, wherever you're out there. I, I enjoyed it for the theater. I enjoyed it for the ridiculousness that was, that was going on, for the shots to the sideline, for the back and forth. I don't think that this helped Mourinho in any way. Because I don't feel that any of the players, after being down 2 nothing, looked at each other and said, hey, let's do it for Jose. I, I, but, but, I don't, but I also don't necessarily think that they're looking around going, oh, this guy's ridiculous. I, it never, I never felt a responsibility to the coach. As much as I may like the coach or even love uh, this person who, who's in this position— I never felt that I had any added responsibility other than to the game and to my teammates out there to win this win one for the Gipper. What <laughs> wasn't that wasn't that wasn't how it played out, and yet that's how it was framed. Oh, they they recognized the opportunity and they came to his defense. <laughs> that's interesting because last week I brought up that there's an expression in Brazil called "corpo mole," when uh, which refers to when players want a manager to get fired and they start mailing in games. And I mentioned I had caught a whiff of that from Manchester United the last few games. To me, that second half would have been the ultimate test of that uh, because I don't care what they say now. If that second half had gone the way the first half they had lost meekly to Newcastle at home going into an international break, I think he yeah. would have been fired. Yeah. So those players were sitting there in that dressing room at halftime knowing that if the goal is to get Mourinho fired, <laughs> we just need to putz around for another 45 exactly. minutes look here. around and goes, hey guys, listen, uh, not for nothing, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and yet... Uh, and it would have been mission accomplished. Yeah. And yet they didn't do that. But you don't think it was out of any great solidarity to Mourinho. It was just their, their no. professional professionalism came out there and said, Let, let's go out here and win this game. Yeah, the scenes, remember when <laughs> Mourinho won with Inter? Uh, and, and, you know, the scenes after the the game. And, you know, it's, it wasn't romantic back then, okay? And it wasn't necessarily memorable in the way they did it. But he endeared himself to his players in a way that I don't think exists right now, right now with his relationship with Manchester United. And look, it's a different environment, different situation, different time. I get it. But I don't think if they were to win or if they were to lose, if he were to get fired or if they would go on or if they were to go on and win, you know, whatever, uh, the, the league or Champions League or whatever, that there would be that level of connection and emotion uh, between the two that we've seen in the past. And by the way, the fixture list coming out of the international break is brutal. Next six games, they're away to Chelsea. There's two against Juventus in the Champions League, away to Manchester City. So uh, he's not out of the woods yet. There are losses coming, and we'll see how he reacts. And uh, so he still might not be long for that job. Another guy who might not be long for his job is Lopetegui at Real Madrid. 
They lost away to Alaves, a uh, 95th minute winner, and they're now zero goals in the last four games. They've lost three of those. Uh, there was some talk he might get fired this week. It looks like that's not going to happen, but they're talking about uh, let's reassess after the Barcelona game October 28th. They have after the international break, they play Levante at home, then Victoria Pilsen at home in the Champions League. God help him if he doesn't win those two games. But then they face Barcelona October 28th, and they kind of want to see where they're at then. But boy, if he does get fired here, what a disastrous last few months for that guy's career oh to get God. fired one day before the World Cup because you took the Real Madrid job and then only last a few months there. My God, that would be... <laughs> but you know, you know who is sitting pretty is Zidane. Well, we're going to get to him in a second. So we'll talk United and Real Madrid. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the other big team that's in crisis right now, Bayern Munich. We'll end on this. Oh boy. So they get thumped at home 3-0 by Gladbach. And I know it's early, but amazingly enough, they are right now sixth in the Bundesliga table. Uh, winless in four, three of those games having been at home. So all sorts of pressure on Niko Kovac. And by the way, there's some stories swirling that that's the job Zidane has a Zion more so than Manchester United. He doesn't want the the pressure of the Premier League right now that if he was going to jump back in, he ideally wants to take a sabbatical for a season, right. but if he was going to jump back in now, it would be Well, more if he's going to follow Pep's template. Then, yes. Right? And so let's keep an eye on that. His agent gave an interview where he seemed to downplay any chance of him going to the Premier League right mm-hmm. now. Uh, but what do you think about this situation? I mean, we talked about it last week and you weren't ready to uh, push the panic button. Now it's another big loss on top of it. I, when, when I say push the panic button, it doesn't mean that you don't fire the coach. I mean, that's not pushing the panic button. That is, look, this isn't working. Right. Uh, it maybe worked for a little bit, but there's come a point now. And we see that we saw this last year. And, you know, is it is it too early to hit the bat phone there for you, <laughs> I mean, uh, he's he's saying, guys, it's still only October. I mean, give, give me a break here, all right? And, and I don't think that they would necessarily do that. The, the Zidane thing is is fascinating. I mean, who knows? Even if, even if they were winning, <laughs> they might even consider it. Yeah, but I, I don't... I don't have a reason why this is happening, but it's not my job to. It is Niko Kovac's uh, job to. And if he doesn't get it right, they will look at what happened last year and say, all right, we're going to make a change. And with that change, uh, then we'll go on a run. And we've seen it happen. I will give credit to our friend and colleague, uh, Jovan Karoski, who from the start has been saying that Borussia Dortmund is going to challenge for the Bundesliga title. Still early days, still early days, and a whole lot can change. But right now, sitting pretty and looking good. Yeah, the amazing thing there, they had an incredible win over Augsburg this past weekend, 4-3. Right now, the top scorer in the Bundesliga is Paco Alcacer, and the leader in assists is Jaden Sancho. Two players for Dortmund who do not start regularly. As a matter of fact, Alcacer has six goals in the Bundesliga this season in 81 minutes on the field. It's one of the most astonishing things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, obviously, he's not going to keep up that pace, but he seems to be a great fit there. And, you know, they, it's a loan from Barcelona with a relatively low permanent buy clause that they could have him for 20-something million euros at the end of the season, which is starting to look like a no-brainer and in, in, in this market, an incredible bargain. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's funny. I was joking with Warren Barton that whenever Bayern starts struggling, Jupp Heynckes must just turn to his family and be like, all right, I'm going to start packing and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> Let's be ready. It's amazing. uh, It's amazing. All right. All sorts of stuff is happening. Anything else, Mossy? No, that is it. That is it. Well, thank you. As we said, let us know going forward with your comments and your concerns. Uh, We talked earlier about uh, Ask Alexi. We've come to the end of our our podcast here. Uh, And at the end, we always talk uh, about our one big thing. And as we started the podcast with my State of the Union Talking about Michael Bradley, and I know it was, it was Michael Bradley-focused and Michael Bradley-centric, but it could be 
about anyone because uh, I do feel that we are at a turning point, that we are at a seminal moment when it comes to the U.S. men's national team. Uh, Have we wasted time since that fateful day in Trinidad more than a year ago? Maybe. And I think it is a little concerning uh, and disconcerting that we have yet to name a coach. But if patience and time was needed, and I know in the interim there was a new president of the United States Soccer Federation elected and a whole lot of yelling and screaming that went on, now in place is Ernie Stewart, whose job is ultimately to figure out who is going to be the coach going forward. When it comes to the old guard, uh, there are certainly certain players that are going to continue on. And we've talked about the Christian Pulisics and the, uh, and the John Brooks, and they will be given the opportunity to rectify the situation. But ultimately, I do believe going forward that the emergence from this dark time is going to be led by a new core of young players. I've talked about the importance of the Olympic team going forward, where I think that core can be uh, nurtured and fostered and matriculate then to be that leadership core and take that ownership of the full national team. We've already seen players step up and take that opportunity. I know Weston McKinney is going to be involved in this game, but he's 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 a player that uh, has already come in and stamped his uh, presence and announced it with authority. We're going to see a guy like Josh Sargent who is the redheaded hope for the future. Uh, And anytime that you can uh, bring in a little bit of the mutant gene into the national team, I think it's a good thing. In this particular case, we are looking for him to be the savior in terms of scoring goals. He has yet to break through in the first team over in Germany. But once again, in order for him to be what many people believe he can be, you have to give a player time. You have to give a player patience. Not forever, because at some point you have to grab a hold of it with your two hands. But This is the moment. This is the time to do that. And yes, it's the moment and time to do it, maybe even at the expense of other players who in this moment are good. But I do believe, if given the time and the patience, that we can come out the other side with not just better players, but ultimately a better team that is certainly not going to let happen what happened in terms of not qualifying for the World Cup. But more importantly, when they get to these tournaments, whether it's the Olympics uh, and then with the World Cups in the future, that they are going to rectify the situation. And we are going to step on the field come 2022 with a new breed, with a new group, with a new sense of responsibility, with a recognition and respect for the past and what has happened, both the good and the bad, but with a look to the future and an ownership, the likes of which uh, we haven't seen for a long time. And that's a good thing, and I hope that that happens. But it doesn't happen when you just kind of regurgitate players from the past and players that I believe can be phased out going forward. And while we might lose something in the short term, we gain in the long term. All right, Mossy, anything to say before we head out? Well, I know you're off to Tampa to cover this game yes. against Columbia. Enjoy it. And then straight to Dallas. Uh, by the time you hear us next, the U.S. women will have most likely clinched a World Cup berth. So I'm sure we'll talk Famous about that. Famous last words right there, Mossy. <laughs> Famous last podcast. words. Yeah, so yeah, we're going to uh, Tampa. So U.S. Columbia, which is going to be fun, as I said. Rob Stone's hometown of Tampa. So we're going to uh, light that Tampa town up and then right to Dallas. And when I say Dallas, I mean Frisco (laughs) outside of Dallas for what hopefully is a celebration of the U.S. women's team qualifying for the 2019 World Cup in France and then getting the opportunity to defend their World Cup. 
A lot of players in this Colombia squad are involved in those Copa Libertadores semifinals. I'm going to jam this in there again. Uh, Quintero, who's the star for River Plate. Miguel Borja, a star striker for Palmeiras. Guys like Wilmer Barrios and Edwin Cardona, who play for Boca. So there's that whole tie into this Colombia game, too. So I'm looking forward to it. Tell the folks out there what the uh, the final is uh, shaping up to be. Oh, it could be Boca River. Well, what do you think it's going to be? Oh, I think Gremio beats River and spoils. I think it's going to be Gremio Boca in the final, which would be tasty, too, so. That's is that what you want, or or do you want what the masses want to see? No, I'm obviously rooting for the Brazilian teams, but I recognize Boca River would be incredible. It'd be like a Barcelona Real Madrid It'd Champions League cool, final. It? it would be very cool. All right, well, we'll see how that all shapes out too. Uh, thank you so much for listening. As always, uh, send us your comments and your questions and your concerns out there. Use that Ask Alexi hashtag. We will be here again next week. At which point, hopefully, the women's team will have qualified for the World Cup uh, to talk about all the things on and off the field when it comes to soccer. Uh, and as we always say, with the uh, an American eye. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Size the day.